the incomparable. Number 584, October 2021. Welcome back, everybody, to The Incomparable. I'm your host, Jason Snell, and this is an edition of what we like to call Old Movie Club. These are legitimately old movies, although one of them is from when I was alive, and I don't like that, but that's just where we are now. Uh, We are here to discuss 1954's Rear Window and 1974's The Conversation, uh, directed by, of course, famous directors. It's Alfred Hitchcock and Francis Ford Coppola. And what do these movies have in common? Well... I think if you're paying attention and you look around your, uh, your your place where you're listening to this podcast, you may find somebody's watching you right now. And that person is Philip Michaels, who joins me and who selected these movies. Hello, Phil. Hi, I'm sorry. I, I agreed to only appear with the director. Is the director here? I'm not appearing without the director. <laughs> uh, the, the director of the movie or the director of the Embarco, Embarcadero Center the real dire- estate yeah, complex? The, the, yes, the director. He's okay. just, the, He's the, just director. the director. Well, let me see. Fred director of the Connecticut directors. It comes from a He's, good family. I have four candidates here who might be the director. They are uh-huh. David J. Lohr. Not the director. I, I, I'm i thinking it's the director of Tender Mercies. Mm. Erica Ensign? I take direction. Uh, I, I don't direct. No way. Not the director. Dan Morin? Mm-mm. Are you the director? Uh, I'm the assistant to the director. Dan oh. Morin is Miss Torso. <laughs> Interesting choice. And that leaves Dr. Drang. I think you might be the director. <gasps> I have a directory, but that's about it. Uh, I, I, I think the real director was all the directors we met along the way. Oh, they're right. The, the director, director was inside, was inside us all along. Us all along. Yeah. Actually, the director we... was in the flower bed all along. Yeah. <laughs> and, until we dug him up. Oh, my. Oh, my. Well, Phil, do you want to tell us? I mean, obviously, there are, there are some very clear linkages here, but you decided to have us watch Rear Window, in which Jimmy Stewart stares out his window at the lives of the people around him and the conversation uh-huh. in which... In which Gene Hackman listens to a conversation. You've really boiled down the movie to their es- essential points. <laughs> Good night, everyone. Yeah, well, it's it's your two. It's your two. Uh, it, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean that people aren't watching and or listening to you. And mm-hmm. uh, um, I suggested the conversation because I saw it recently. Uh, it's available on, well, currently Hulu. It used to be on Amazon mm-hmm. Prime, and it sort of ping-pongs back before uh, between different uh, streaming services. And I thought, what movie would pair well with this? Oh, I I, I know. The, the the rear window, mm-hmm. as we call it. Yeah. <laughs> the conversation is available on Blu-ray in my home. Uh, uh, oh, well, well. well, aren't we fancy? Yeah. Well, <laughs> I'm not. Yes. No, that's a very, I, I, I think I've talked to your husband about the conversation. Not surprised. Let's start. <laughs> wow. Oh, the conversation. Oh. <laughs> Let's start with Rear Window, because we like yes. to go chronologically here. Alfred Hitchcock, we, I watched this movie with um, with my wife, and she said, you know, I don't think I've seen that many Alfred Hitchcock movies. And then I listed off like seven Alfred Hitchcock movies that we've seen. <laughs> and she said, okay, I guess you're right. We have seen a lot of Alfred Hitchcock movies. But this is a, a classic people uh, talk about it. People uh, love it. It's in the National Film Registry. Uh, and it is, of course, uh, Jimmy Stewart with a broken leg and some binoculars and a camera sitting in a wheelchair watching life unfold around him out his rear window um and then of course deciding that he's a witness to murder and uh and he is by the way there's no <laughs> twist he is a no, witness to murder 
Stephen was <laughs> expecting a twist the whole time. Nope. Nope. It's based on a short story titled It Had to Be Murder. Uh, well, so it did. You know. And it did. Yeah, I mean, yeah. the, it, it has a twist in the sense that there there is some period throughout the movie in which you're like, well, I mean, if I didn't know this was a Hitchcock movie, I would think maybe Jimmy Stewart is just seeing things. Because yes. They right. do carefully structure it, like including yes. there is one part that seems to almost tell the audience like, oh, don't worry, everything's fine, mm. for which Jimmy Stewart is asleep. Asleep, yep. And you're <laughs> supposed to be like, well, maybe he is just imagining this. And I think it does a super effective job at that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, if, if I have a complaint about Hitchcock movies, um, they tend to tip their hands too early for my taste. Mm-hmm. This is also my complaint with Shadow of a Doubt, which is my favorite Hitchcock movie, and which we discussed previously. Yeah. But yeah. I, I, I uh, wish they would keep the... Maybe he's full of it a little bit longer in the movie. Um, mm-hmm. And they, they, like Dan says, they do have that, that little moment where everything that Jimmy Stewart uh, believes is turned up on its head. And, and the, the skeptical detective says, well, you're, you're full of crap and, and, and walks out. And then they, um, but maybe five minutes later, there's a very pivotal plot twist that uh, Jimmy Stewart goes, nope, I'm on to something. <laughs> I was right. I yeah. was right. <laughs> I was right all along, you stupid <laughs> cop. <laughs> Summed up really well by the uh, by the scene where Grace Kelly comes in to meet the detective and without preamble says, we think Thorwald is guilty. Yeah. <laughs> There's not even a trial. Yeah. You know, uh, mm-hmm. God. We've, God, had, God we've held the trial Grace already Kelly. and he's guilty. So this is... Uh, so yes, there is that one. There are a lot of fade ins and fade outs in Rear Window, uh, and there is that one scene where where he's asleep, and we see the neighbor across the way, Mister Thorwald, and a lady leave in the middle of the night, and he's asleep, so he doesn't see that. So we have a little piece of information that Jimmy Stewart does not have. Jimmy Stewart is a uh, photographer in all sorts of worn, torn, and wild locations. Uh, his girlfriend is Grace Kelly. She is a socialite. And uh, so there is a friction between them because she sort of wants him to settle down. And he says that all the fancy, you know, places that she inhabits are not for him because he needs to be out there on the front lines and all sorts of wild places. And yeah, it's uh, not so much that she wants him to settle down. It's that she wants them to be together. And he doesn't think that's possible. Right. Because he because it's like, oh, it's no place for a woman out there in the wild place where I'm. I also think that this they're reading watching this time. I I thought to myself, this is also a little bit of a midlife crisis sort of thing where, you know, she's she first off, she's 20 years younger than he is. Yeah, yeah, it truly is a midlife crisis because Jimmy Stewart is very old in this picture. And he's Grace not Kelly actually is... that old. He's in his mid 40s. He's in his mid 40s, but she's in her mid 20s. He's graying. I read this time. I read it as being very much like he doesn't want to change. He's been living this fast life as a a photographer out in wild locations around the world and he doesn't want to settle down. He just he doesn't want to grow up. He just wants to keep doing that. And Grace Kelly, 20 years his junior, basically is saying you could do fashion, you know, you could do ads, you could be here in New York with me, you could make a lot of money and we could we could be happy and we could settle down and we could have a family and all of that and he's super resistant to it. I and I think and, and of course this is all overlaid on the fact that his leg is broken, so he can't go anywhere. And so he feels like really heavily like he's trapped in this life and he wants to be free and roam around and he can't. And there, there's that subtext that 
Everywhere he normally goes on assignment is is exciting, it's foreign, it's exotic, and this is the most boring place he could be. He's trapped. He and he, I think he even talks about this this miasma of boredom at, at one point, and and suddenly it's really exciting looking at all the mm. people across the way, and oh, and there's a murder! How yep. exciting! Yay. Two things I want to say. One, I want to I want to say to phil like good job on picking two movies that feel timely ah a movie about someone trapped in their house i don't know what that's like and two a movie about surveillance state which we'll get to but i also want to add the second part of that is if i may paraphrase ghostbusters when grace kelly asks you to marry her you say yes (laughs) idiot Uh, (laughs) you're kind of a kind of a prickly jerk this yeah. was sort of a discussion we had in, in, in Michael's Towers as we were watching the movie. It was, um, <laughs> why, what does Grace Kelly see in Jimmy Stewart? Because for uh-huh. the entire runtime of the movie, yeah. you're basically going, I wouldn't want to be with that cat. He is a sourpuss. And, uh, well, we're not, we're and, not seeing him at his best. My, yeah, exactly. My headcanon yeah. on that is that, you know, after he, because he's already been in this cast for long enough that his editor thinks he's going to be getting out of it. So <laughs> not only is he trapped, he's a guy who likes to be, you know, on the on on the wing and, and going wherever he wants to go. And he's trapped here, but he's been trapped here for a while. So I feel like she got to know him at his best. And the fact that she is still in love with him at his his worst means that they actually do have a chance at a future, even though he is a complete jerk throughout this entire movie. There is not a redeeming redeeming factor uh, about Jimmy Stewart in this movie. <laughs> the the redeeming factor is he's the hero of a Hitchcock film, and a Hitchcock blonde must always be deeply in love with the hero in a Hitchcock. Film. I think Erica mentioned headcanon. I think that it's fair to say that you really do have to assume that there is a, obviously a, a, a history here where his leg isn't broken and he is a charming globetrotting photographer who's feeling, you know, he, he's, he, he's just so cool and she's interested in him. And then she's like, well, I need, you know, I want him to settle down because, you know, that's the, that's the thing I want him to do. And then, but by the time we meet them, he is stir crazy and not convinced that he, I mean, he, there's very much a scene with his nurse uh, where he basically says, everything is terrible, right? Like, I mean, he's just, <laughs> let's, let's, let's not in. forget, it's, it's 1954. He's not binging Netflix all day. There's, yep. <laughs> there's not a lot to do. There's the radio. No, the window yeah. is Netflix. <laughs> window and yeah. chill. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And one of the things I appreciate about this movie this movie really conveys that it is hot out. It is yeah. it is steamy. It is mm-hmm. unpleasant. You watch this movie during a heat wave, you're all, I have made a bad choice because this is not taking my mind off the weather. That is a uh, yeah. that, the, the, very few movies convey setting like this. It's one. selling the premise, right? Because it's like, why is everybody's window open? <laughs> so it's yeah. like, yeah, because right. it's hot. Right. Okay. That's why. But, and this is this is very much like like Grace Kelly's entrance. She's had that hairy lime buildup from the nurse already and then she enters and she just sort of looms in and just starts kissing him and you're just like oh window and chill she's just so she's she's just so charming she's just so adorable i love her (laughs) i love jimmy stewart why and and i take a back seat to no one in my love for jimmy stewart he is awful in this movie <laughs> I mean, he's fine he's a he's a great he's okay, a great okay. actor Whew. in the movie yeah, but yeah. but he but he is he, he, i he is the least jimmy stewart-ish 
except maybe in that uh, terrible Philip Marlowe um, movie uh, later on, later on, like in the, in the late seventies or eighties. You, you say that, Drang, and yet there are a bunch of movies where Jimmy Stewart really has a has a mean streak that comes out in some of his roles, like the Anthony Mann westerns and the mm, the Anatomy yeah. of a Murder. He he's kind of a jerk in those movies too. <laughs> the second conversation we had was basically. Where did Jimmy Stewart get this uh, reputation for decency? Because he's a jerk in a lot of movies. <laughs> uh, I don't think he's a jerk in the anatomy of a, of a movie of, of murder. But uh, the thing is, he is. He, it's it's so God. He is such a pain in the ass in this movie. <laughs> yeah, where he believes in this myth of himself that he has built up about what a what a great adventurer he is and oh you, you, we're going to go out to the they're going to have to eat fish heads and <laughs> come on now you know how did grace kelly get to know him get to know the the him if he's always out eating fish heads and do- dodging bullets and being in a in a frozen uh, P forty five. Well, he comes back to New York where, and he goes to the parties, and he gets to regale that's people right. with all his stories and be this the, the glamour. Yeah, that kind makes of him it. even worse. Yeah, that he makes got him run even over worse. on a race on a racetrack, which very well could have been in the states. So I'm, you know, there are exciting things to take pictures of here too. Why, why is this blonde woman always draping herself on me? I get off <laughs> me, <laughs> Grace Kelly. Yes, that's right. I like that he's super cranky in this movie because it serves that he's he's stuck. Uh, in this apartment, uh, a a not wheelchair friendly apartment, by the way. No, no. not even a apartment to hide from a murderer. No, so he's <laughs> he's stuck here and all that, and so I get that he's cranky. But yeah, there are those moments with uh, with uh, with Grace Kelly where uh, you know she just why are you being so mean to her? <laughs> she is way too tolerant. She's Grace F and Kelly. Yeah. she doesn't need this. <laughs> Uh, Jason, you wanted to talk about the nurse. Yes, who, Thelma uh, Ritter. For my Thelma money, Ritter. Uh, the oh. greatest female part in this movie. Okay, yes. so oh, yeah. I looked it up. True. So Thelma Ritter nominated six times for an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress, though she never won. But you know what? <laughs> Identified properly by Lauren while we were watching this movie. Miracle on 34th As the Street. lady uncredited yep. in Miracle on Thir- yep. 34th Street says, why are you sending me to Gimbal's? I just don't get it. I don't I get, don't it. get it. Yeah. And that's who it is. It's Thelma Ritter. And then I looked it up like, oh, she was also nominated for six Oscars and never won, uh, which is a record for uh, six Oscars in one category, having never won it, that she shares, I forget with who, one other actress. So, yeah. it, it uh, And she's, you know, given Jimmy Stewart massages and also little uh, doses of reality. And then later she gets caught up in the... In the uh, the 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 I, w- I wanted to say murder plot, but it's like detective murder solving plot that goes on in this movie. Uh, she she becomes a Jimmy Stewart irregular. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I I agree. I feel like this movie would be like I really enjoyed this movie, but uh, I feel like it would be better if we felt even more strongly that. Jimmy Stewart was off his rocker and seeing <laughs> things where there was nothing. And yes. instead it, it is never like at the end of the movie, Lauren turned to me and said, so there's no twist. It just is exactly <laughs> what he thought. And I know that they set it up a little bit, but like I wanted more of like not believing Jimmy Stewart. <laughs> See, I like, I like the movie when it gets going when there's the other people sort of buy into it because I don't want to spend the entire movie like yeah. arguing whether or not Jimmy Stewart is like, is actually seeing. Things. I like them buying into it. I I wanted a little bit more of like, 
is he selling them a bill of goods on this? Like that that part of it. But I do like sure. when they yeah. become a team and they're all like, all right, let's do this. Let's solve this murder. <laughs> like you, you want the suspense of, is he really seeing this? Before you get to the suspense of, is Raymond Burr going to get him? Oh, man. I would like Wendell Corey, who plays the cop, to be pulling people aside going, Watch him. He's got the apartment madness or the, the yeah. heat yes, madness. Yeah, that's right. He, no, he's, 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 he's heat crazy. Yeah. He's got the apartment madness. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Something I think we can all relate to. Uh, yeah. uh, a, New York, a New York policeman would know it well. Uh-huh. I don't really care that I, that there's no twist in this and that because mm-hmm. honestly i don't watch hitchcock movies because of the twists even yeah supposedly, i know sure. they it's have hard them. to rewatch you, you watch him for how how he sets everything up yep and in this case you know the star of the movie is the set yes oh uh, my god uh, oh it's a is magnificent it is set. it is fantastic mm-hmm. and it is it, and it's just you know watching him watching hitchcock move us around like every shot in this movie ex- until the you know the ridiculous ones where where Jimmy at the end where Jimmy Stewart is falling uh, <laughs> basically every shot in this movie is taken through his window essentially right yeah. you know we're looking one direction or another but it's all through those three windows that we see the sh- the shades go up as the as the uh, as the credits are rolling at the beginning of the movie and it it, it it's the star of the show yeah. Far and away. Yeah, I mean, this this is where Hitchcock is in that sort of period where he starts getting weird and trying things. So, you know, you had Rope with the 10-minute cuts. Mm-hmm. You had Vertigo. You had, and you had this, which this is kind of an audacious thing. It's not even like it's set up like a stage play. It's even more tightly constricted for the action of the characters. And then you have this magnificent set where all of the actions are stuck in these windows, Right. We're not going in and getting close ups anywhere else. That's right. And it's fascinating. It, it, it adds a lot to the movie. I mean, I was looking back. I, I watched this, I think, for the first time in a Hitchcock class in college. And I wrote a paper about this movie, about that very aspect of like you're watching you're you're in the movie, right? You are the audience and Jimmy Stewart's the audience and there's a conflation of that. They're like little TV screens. And and there's uh, so much of it is, you know, you've got Hitchcock at the beginning winding the clock almost like he's like, you know, he's running the, the pace of the movie, right? <laughs> like his little cameo there. So it's exquisitely well constructed. And I think I, I mean, I agree with Drang that the, the twist for me is not necessary here because the suspense of that last scene where Raymond Burr is coming in. I mean, if you're not on the edge of your seat in that scene... When Grace Kelly is breaking into the apartment and and you can't, mm. Jimmy Stewart can't do anything because he's in a wheelchair, right? Like, then you have nothing. The moment when Raymond Burr looks out the window at him, which yes. you're waiting the right. entire movie for somebody to notice the gaze of the voyeur, <laughs> right? And, we, and he holds yeah. it. And Hitchcock is like, no, nobody is going to notice the gaze for the whole movie until Raymond Burr looks and it is one of the most electric moments in any movie I have ever seen. Because I'm like, oh, jeez. Oh. It's like breaking the fourth wall. <laughs> oh, it my is. God. The other part of why this works so well is because there isn't a score except for the beginning and the end. And just, you know, in, in everything else yeah, everything right. else is diegetic. Even- Drain is correct when he says that the set is the star of the movie. But the, the best supporting actor is the sound. Uh, Absolutely. Scape. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's what both of these movies have in common. They they rely so much on these individual little sounds. And the more you watch them, the more times you go back and watch them and you start picking things out. 
And especially if you put the captions on, sometimes the captions will indicate specific sounds, which is kind of interesting. they're wrong. And they are, yeah. <laughs> I, I learned. It is fascinating how, even as the camera is moving from apartment to apartment, just how the sound shifts. And, you know, all of my sound design friends, this is one of their favorite films. This is just like, if you do sound design, you have to watch this. It's one of the few movies that that really uses silence in the sense that there's no dialogue mm-hmm. to its advantage, where you're just following uh, Jimmy Stewart's gaze from, from right. window to window and watching all these things happening. And there are long stretches where no one's talking in this movie. And it's it's great. That part yeah, is great. And, and the reason that that works so well is because I just uh, the thing that I love about this movie is that I feel uh, <laughs> even more, as we said, now that I know what it's like to be stuck in an apartment for a very, very long time. But even before that, even when I first saw this movie, I really felt a sense of place. And I loved how specific each other apartment that he would look into or look past or whatever, like they just they each had their own specific flavor and specific personality and the sound absolutely played into that. And I just I feel like I know all of the people in this movie, even though you can barely hear most of their voices. Some of them, you never hear them say anything, but you see them living their lives. And it is it. It's, it's slightly uncomfortable because I also feel a little bit like a voyeur because I know mm-hmm. that, you know, the, the watching somebody through the windows thing is just such a it, it, it's a deep seated feeling of like, I technically shouldn't be doing this, but gosh, is it fun? Yeah. And, and Hitchcock puts you there. I mean, he's he's making you watch. He makes you complicit. Yep. Yeah. He makes right. he makes you be Jimmy Stewart. And it's it's funny how you like when Doyle shows up and he just starts watching, too. And, you know, he starts watching the the dancer and Jimmy Stewart goes, how's your wife? Right. You know, it's like everybody winds up watching when they come into Jimmy Stewart's apartment. No one else's apartment, apparently. But that was the original. um, The original title was everybody watches at Jeff's. (laughs) (laughs) It is in some ways, I think, the perfect movie movie in that. A movie is us watching people's lives. That's what watching a movie is. And this movie invites us to be the voyeur with Jimmy Stewart and then also witness kind of the unraveling of him and the consequences of his gaze. And in that way, on a meta level, I really love it. It's like it is a movie about watching movies and whatever out your window. Uh, I love that about it. It's it's also a thread through a lot of Hitchcock films of voyeurism because you know the peeping Tom is much much worse and and even Psycho, uh, you know Norman Bates is is a bit of a voyeur when we first meet yeah, him. You think that had something to do with what Hitchcock was like? Mm. Uh, just a little bit, just a <laughs> yeah. little bit. Well, a little film- bit. What yeah. is a filmmaker if not a voyeur? At a lot of times, you're pointing cameras at people. I, I don't yeah. understand why you think that. That Jimmy Stewart is uh, is unpleasant. This movie is about how blonde women like Grace Kelly should love even fat balding directors <laughs> who fix clocks, fixing clocks. Because um, that's that. This is a very obvious cameo by Hitch- Hitchcock. By the way, I saw this movie first in, when it was re released in 1983, uh, after it had been basically nowhere for roughly 20 years because Hitchcock had gotten the rights of it back and didn't want it shown anywhere. 
and it was kind of it was released in the art house movie uh, art house theaters and i went to see it in one of those with my uh, not yet wife and so this was a single screen old movie palace that was kind of run down a bit but still had the giant screen and so as you were i think we were we were in the balcony looking at this and it was like the it was the perfect viewpoint for watching this movie the, mm-hmm. you know the the courtyard was big in front of us and we were up high like Jimmy Stewart is and it was it was a great way to watch this movie I've also seen it on the big screen not that cool but uh, I, I first watched it in college in a in a class uh, but but yeah it I think it was early 2000s and it was actually went on a first date to and and saw Rear Window on the big screen. I had seen it before he had not. And yeah, if you ever get a chance and you haven't already seen it in a movie theater, absolutely do that because it's it's wonderful to watch at home. It's a very good big screen movie. Yeah, it is it is much better. See, I I had the exact opposite experience, which I think uh has affected my subsequent uh enjoyment of the movie. It, this was one of those movies where uh, back in the day it was constantly airing on AMC, back when AMC aired movies and didn't <laughs> interrupt them with commercials and was the good <laughs> classic movie channel as opposed to uh, TCM, which was, we're going to we're gonna colorize everything and give things a happy ending now. Ted Turner's crazy. But they would show <laughs> Rear Window constantly. And I would always turn it on and I would, I, have pro- I had probably seen 70% of this movie out of order including seeing the ending first and so when i finally um saw it in from beginning to end in one go it was like yeah raymond burr's the killer what are you gonna do and (laughs) it's yes as the director intended me to see it in bits and bobs and uh (laughs) uh cut up to to a fairly well so i would not recommend seeing the movie that way not unlike mrs thorwald (laughs) go see it on a big screen yeah I will. I do want to call out my favorite line that I had actually made me stop and think this time, which I never <laughs> really noticed before. There's a scene where he's talking to Doyle, and uh, you know, he asks him about the saw and the knives, and he's like, "You never cut anybody up with the couple hundred knives you've owned." I'm like, "Who owns a couple hundred knives?" <laughs> <laughs> That's so weird. Adventure photographers, I guess. Yeah, who's as old as he is? That's a lot of knives. I thought you were going to say uh, he better get that trunk out of there before it starts to leak. That was, I also, love yeah. that line. Well, so that's much. that's good. And Thelma's Ritter at the end, where she says, "I don't want any part of it." Uh, yeah, her. any part of her. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's also, uh, uh, the dog very well trained. Mm. You're watching the, the dog. dog go down oh, in the basket, and then, and then the dog is dead. I for yeah, I forgot about that. I I, I live with a, a person who doesn't enjoy watching movies where the dog dies, and I mm-hmm. like I knew that that was going to happen, but I had sort of forgotten. I was just really excited for him to see the dog riding in a basket up and down <laughs> oh, from from no. a, a balcony, which yeah. is just a wonderful you yeah. know city touch. Have him yeah. leave after that idea. point, where it's like this is just a movie about a dog that goes up and down in a basket. That's <laughs> this it. is yeah. great for the dog. I hope that dog solves the crime mm-hmm. in a way he does. <laughs> There is that moment that I think is 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 a really great moment where when the dog is found dead, strangled, the neck is broken, and the dog's owner says, which one of you did it? And yeah. that's the first moment where the we've been watching everybody, but now everybody, everybody is all out. watching yep. together. 
and you're like, oh, uh oh, yeah. <laughs> like everybody except is for connected, except now. for Mister Thorwald, which is another great shot as he yes. sits there with the ember of his his cigar, cigar glowing. Yeah, yeah. yep, because yep. he could very easily just not be home mm-hmm. because his his window is dark, right. but and then is. you see like the cherry on the end of it, and it's like, oh boy, yep. <laughs> the movie that I was thinking about while I was watching this, and this is funny given what we also watched, which I was thinking about Blow Up, oh, yeah. uh, which is Michelangelo and Tony Oni. Mm-hmm. And that's the movie where a guy takes pictures in a park and he accidentally takes pictures of things that he's not supposed to take pictures of. And it's a whole thing. And it inspired the conversation. <laughs> but I thought, like, these are all of a kind, which is it is... Uh, questioning our whole like we have this natural curiosity so my parents lived in a motorhome for 11 years and they live they they would go to these various parks uh as they traveled around the country and my when i would talk to my mom about it she'd be like oh well this person's doing this and this person walked by with an interesting dog and all of that and i thought about that while i was watching rear window because it is on one level this curiosity is is human nature but put in the context of rear window it's also this like if he's not engaging with anybody he's just observing and i love the idea that everybody's got a little story we got the newlyweds we got the the songwriter we've got miss lonely Lonely hearts Hearts, right like we've got these other stories that are like there there's a whole movie that there is no murder that is just observing the lives of these interesting people from out this window but um you know this movie has a murder in it which is fine it's it's fine but like those other parts are really great too and like i i love the slice of life aspect of this which is yes. we're getting a little bit of a view into all of these different people who are very close together sometimes not separated by anything except a very thin wall and yet they're all living their separate lives in studying up for this movie i learned that the songwriter is played by um ross mm-hmm. ross Baggett. Bagdasarian, who you will know as the creator yep. of Alvin and the Chipmunks. Alvin the Chipmunks. <laughs> I was just going to say that. I have and, that in my notes. <laughs> and there is the scene where Miss Lonely Hearts is about to end it all. And then she hears the songwriter's song. And I would give anything. I would give anything if it were the Christmas <laughs> time. It's <laughs> time for home. She's not going to take the pills, Miss Lonely Hearts. Yeah. <laughs> and then she dies. Sorry to derail the conversation. I just. You know, it's funny because. There is a, you know, again, the timeliness of this, I think, in pointing to the human nature of it is, you know, so many people today complain about being your people are buried in their phones or Mm -hmm. constantly online and stuff and nobody engages with the people around them. And you could argue, well, to a certain degree. That has always happened. It just changes in terms of how you do it. So if you were, perhaps if you were filming Rear Window today, it would just be everybody (laughs) on their phones not paying attention to the murder. Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, the, the people who are living in, you know, on top of each other like this, it's clear that other than Jimmy Stewart, they're all pretty much minding their own business. It, it is jarring when uh, the dog owner mm-hmm. uh, starts screaming at everyone and then everyone has to start paying attention and, and to, to their neighbors because they're kind of, I, I think, you know, you're forced into it. If you're living right on top of someone, you kind of mm-hmm. naturally step back that's what that's what city folks do right as a person who lives downtown in a large city in a large apartment building on the 10th floor it's like yes i recognize some of my neighbors but we don't go out of the way to get to know each other because that just gets awkward really Mm -hmm. it's too much Mm -hmm. it's too much 
And, and this got to be too much for Jimmy Stewart. And it got to be too much for Raymond Burr, too, because if he had just waited one week to, to kill his <laughs> wife, yeah. this, none of this would have happened. Yeah. Nobody else was paying movie. attention. I, I am just amused that, that Raymond Burr eventually did penance for this by spending eight years solving crimes sitting in a wheelchair. It's true. Good point. Yes. At the end, by the way, uh, Jimmy Stewart goes over a window and falls to the ground and <laughs> I guess breaks his other leg or breaks his yep. both legs or he breaks both, both of them. Breaks he breaks his both. He breaks it again. Then again, because, yeah. Because the people breaking his fall really do a poor it, job. Bad, poor yeah. job. Yeah, they save him oh, from dying, that, but that's, that's. I find about that it. one of the strangest scenes cinematically too, because they overclock all the Every, overcrank yeah. all the all everybody the running around up yeah, until Doyle. So it kind of stops when Doyle is running through at one point, but it's very strange because I, I get you want to heighten the tension, but if there was a part of this movie that I would refilm, it's just that last segment. Yeah, yeah heightening sure. the tension weird. is one thing. Turning it into Keystone Cops is yeah. another. Benny entirely. Hill music playing in the background. There, <laughs> there are a couple of scenes like that where that was one that bothered me. There's there's also a weird film effect in Grace Kelly's entrance when she's leaning in, just very very slowly leaning towards yes. him to kiss him, and and the helicopter. There's the helicopter one shot of a helicopter in front of the building. A terrible <laughs> terrible composite shot. Yeah. Jason, Jason, would it be better if the Benny Hill music were diagetic? Yes. Oh man! <laughs> oh, yes, it has to be. That's it after he be. plays "Christmas Time Is Here" by the Chipmunks up there uh-huh. in the room. He then yeah. plays the Benny Hill music. Now, yeah, now you're thinking, we got we we have some notes for Alfred Hitchcock. Yeah, that's what cheers <laughs> up Miss Lonely Hearts. Is she loves uh-huh. that yakety sax, <laughs> right? Uh-huh. Well, who doesn't love it? Who doesn't? You know, and and our other film could have also used some yakety yeah. sax. So, it even has a sax. So rear yeah. window is a classic it's great mm-hmm. it the tension does build we we have some criticisms jimmy stewart's a jerk why <laughs> what does grace kelly see in him i think it's okay for the movie that yeah. he's a jerk i yes. just I, I still yeah. hate him he's it's just surprising right like like he's he's she uh, can do better. see i i enjoy his dickishness in this because yeah. i was never a huge jimmy stewart fan so it was like <laughs> oh you know I feel like I mostly know Jimmy Stewart from this, so my kind of like feelings <laughs> about Jimmy Stewart, it's it's the fault of this movie. It's like all his sweetness is carried over from uh It's a Wonderful Life and Shop on the Shop Around the Corner and things like that. And and yet most of his films are more like this. Sharp, He's the more sharp prickly. edges. I don't mind the sharp edges, but I but he is being yeah. a jerk. And like I said, I I started to think that this is very much a midlife crisis thing where he his entire mm-hmm. self worth is mm. in his being this roaming around photographer guy, and not only does his girlfriend want him to settle down, but he's he's also trapped because of his broken leg, and he's facing his future. And he's fighting against it. And like reading it that way, like I get why he's cranky because he needs to accept his life and he hasn't yet. And also by the end of it, he he actually does prove to himself that he can still be a really effective person in doing important things, even if he doesn't go anywhere. Yeah, so we right. don't get anything more than the fact that, uh, you know, Lisa is reading about the Himalayas and, and then switches back to Harper's <laughs> Bazaar. Um, uh, good, so, like, you know, we get the impression that she's probably going to be going off uh, somewhere with him. Yeah. but. By by this time, maybe he has come around a little bit and learned that there can be some some taut, tense excitement in your very own backyard. Mm, so you don't yeah. necessarily have to lose it. I think that ending is the the, the greatest horror touch of all. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, he's not going out in You're the world. You're trapped 
Forever. <laughs> it's punctuated by the scene you just overhear the newlywed apartment where the wife's like, you could have told me you quit your job. <laughs> I, I never like, would have oh, married no. you. Yeah. So let's leave Rear Window behind. Do we have to? Only murders in that building. And talk, reference acknowledged, and talk about 1974's The Conversation, the movie that Francis Ford Coppola made between Godfather Part 1 and Godfather Part 2. Just a little movie tossed off. In which uh, Cindy Williams, TV Shirley, uh, and uh, some other guy are walking around. Frederick Frederick Forrest. Whatever. Okay. Oh, my God. Oh, please. One of my favorite forests. (laughs) Frederick Forrest. Uh, Are walking around Union Square in San Francisco having a conversation. If we're to rank Forrest, he's right behind Whitaker. Okay, uh, if you say so. They uh, they're walking they're walking around uh, Union Square in San Francisco, and they're being uh, being surveilled, stalked by a mime, too. stalked by Robert Shields. <laughs> oh my! You know what? I knew nothing about this movie at all. I like had barely even ever heard of it. I was very surprised when it came out. I was like the conversation. That's a movie. Oh, Gene Hackman's in this. What? Francis Ford Coppola. I knew nothing. So when oh. we get that shot, that's the very beginning, and it's this huge wide shot from up above, and the only thing that keeps catching my eye is that freaking mime and i was mime. like if this is a movie about yeah. a mime i am so out of here <laughs> this podcast. i was scared for a while that yes. is my favorite detail because this is a movie about sound and the first <laughs> thing you focus on is a mime that's brilliant in a sergeant pepper's uniform let's be clear sometimes i think too much I, I say too much about what was in my notes when i watch one of the things we watch for this podcast but i just want to reveal i took a series of single word single line notes <laughs> For the beginning of this movie. And these are my words. Mime. Hackman. <laughs> listening. Van. Kazali. Gross. Ah, uh, yeah. yeah. Got it. Yeah. That's when he's Not gross. Even gross Shirley? is when the Not girls yeah, are, man. When the girls are, yeah. are putting up their makeup in the van on the reflective Here thing. Yeah. And he's like looking at them from close he's up. He's taking, taking and, photos and taking of pictures. Yeah, John Cazale's Gross. Being a creep. That was the gross yeah. moment there. I but, thought it was referred to the mime. I thought we went full circle back No, to the mime. I mean, you could. Too. It's a poem now, so you I, can do I what had you want with it. I had an academic question for me. Is this the last movie in which Harrison Ford is billed this low? <laughs> he's like Possibly. sixth or seventh in the in the credits. Wouldn't be surprised. Is this the one of the few times where he plays Sinister? Yes. Oh, head. it's, and, uh, it's definitely. And, and he's the, he Coppola makes great use of his voice because it can be sinister. I, I I'm gonna uh, risk offending everyone on this. <laughs> I don't think Harrison Ford is a good actor. <laughs> <laughs> whoa, whoa! My hand is up. My hand is up. Ooh, I ooh, think he's ooh, a great ooh. movie star. Oh, yes, he's yes. charismatic to the. But sure. in terms yes, of, a lot of terrible of, actor, you don't look at him he and go, a terrible well, actor. That's an archaeologist there." Is what that is. Basically, I enjoy him as a rogue. I enjoy him as Han Solo in Indiana Jones. And I absolutely hated him in the Tom Clancy films. And I haven't really liked most of his films. He's very good at being Harrison Ford. He he plays Harrison Ford. Thank you, Erica. Well, I mean, it's a Tom Cruise thing, too, I think, where it's like Tom Cruise doesn't have a lot of range. But what he's good at, he's good at. In The Fugitive, Harrison Ford gets convicted of a crime he didn't commit. In Air Force One, Harrison Ford is the president. If you you cast your movie knowing who you got... I think you can. I think he does a good job with it. But yes, this Where, is true. Whereas in this movie, he is acting his little ass off in this picture, and I yeah, think he's that's actually great. trying. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. This is a movie about people who are professional surveillance snoops, snoops artists. 
uh, yeah. not working for law enforcement, but working for whoever hires them. And we do meet Gene Hackman, obviously, as the main character here, and he is a, a legend, apparently, in the surveillance field. But we do meet some of the other uh, surveillance uh, guys as this movie goes along. Um, but the core of it, like, obviously, the pitch, the elevator pitch of this movie is essentially, it's really all about this one conversation and what is being said. And he's got to antennas that are up there and he's got a, a guy with a bag with a microphone in it shotgun mites and they mites. are trying to figure out this conversation we learn about cindy williams and yes frederick Forrest. okay and the conversation that they're trying to that, that they're having here which is stilted and they think they're being watched and he gets the recording of it and is trying to put it together and that is the basic part of the movie and then everything else is about what is you know what is the conversation about and then also who is gene hackman who are these people who are professional bug people and his guilt jason the lengths they had to go to in 1973 to record a podcast it was my god let me tell you all those tape machines i that was for me that was the tensest part the mixing where he's doing watching him mix it together on tape and you had to have a mime i actually sent (laughs) phil a picture of gene hackman Mm -hmm. sitting at the reel to reel player where i said this was podcasts in the uh, 1970s (laughs) yep (laughs) i'm glad we're on the same page the thing that got me was watching him and going how are you doing this so well without using headphones, sir? He's you're got in that a giant speaker. You're over in a his cavernous thing. Speaker, yeah. yeah, he had to have oh. it on a giant speaker because it's literally coming from four different tape machines, and yeah. he didn't have headphones that could have four different, you know, yeah, inputs. True so true enough. I, I like this movie for a lot of what it inspires too. Later, I mean, I, I think you look yes. at something like Sneakers, one of my favorite movies, and oh, yeah. you can see where the parts that were drawn from this. I mean, I think there's a lot of stuff later on like it was interesting because some of the movies refer to this as like a spy movie and you're like it's not really no. at all like it's surveillance no. No. and it's got that angle it's, to it's it a but there's eye noir it's it's not even this that though because he doesn't of, of harry call yeah, yeah, yeah exactly really. exactly yeah. i mean yep. he is the most interesting part therein no question and i can see why i have to mention also the the sort of he kind of there is the um, if you've seen the fantastic Will Smith movie Enemy of the State, yes. in which Gene Hackman oh my god, I forgot about that. Plays this character essentially like, yeah. like twenty years later, it's basically the same guy in the same transparent raincoat. Yeah, he wears the raincoat, and it is it's clearly an homage to this character here, right? Yeah. Like, and and that is the most interesting part of it is what happens when you are a person whose job is to listen to other people, and in the end your paranoia basically gets the better of you, right? Mm -hmm. Like that last shot of him sitting alone in his apartment that he has destroyed looking for the bug that he can't find is kind of emblematic. The the thing I loved is that, you know, there is that Chekhov's bug in the middle of the movie that he dismisses as junk. The phone, yeah. And that's Mm -hmm. clearly what it was. And it never occurs to him that that was it. No, he takes the phone apart. It's not the it's not the phone. It's the saxophone. No, 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 no. It's not even in the phone. It doesn't have to be in the phone. That's the thing. Or, ostensibly, or the question is: Is it is it really that, or is that snake oil? Right, right. Like we also have the whole story about him, where Bernie's trying to figure out how he bugged the two guys in the fishing boat, 
right? And we never learn the answer to right. that. Right. How he pulled see, that off. See, I agree with David. I do think it's uh, a Bernie Moran uh, projection at the end. Yep. Mm-hmm. Because you know, why else would you have that whole elaborate setup of the sequence with the 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 demo, and then having Bernie taping him as a joke? Later in the movie, quote unquote, it's, it's yeah, all gross, set up. Gross. Well, be, uh, yeah, it's because a terrible, it's all about it's all about moment moments where he feels vulnerable, right? right. And he's reminded why right. he should never let his guard down. This is the thing that I found fascinating, having never seen this movie before. Is Gene Hackman's character is a professional surveillance person who, but he reminded me of a lot of other people that I've met in that he's very extremely technical and bad at humans. Yes. And yes. and and what what I was really struck by is that he is a person who should be the most paranoid person in the world and he tells people I don't have a phone in my apartment which he does have. But then he's like, "Yeah, guys from the convention, come to my, my office and hang out with and bring that lady who is also around and sure, we'll just all hang around." And I thought, "Why are you should you not be paranoid about bringing people into your private space and all that? But I think what I accept about it is that he is one super lonely and two a terrible judge of people. He, he, (laughs) he is good at being at a remove from people and from inventing his gadgets, but he's actually really bad at people. And so he allows himself to become a victim of the thing that he is uh, an expert at. And not only that, but he's, his whole thing is trying to save Cindy Williams. And it turns oh. out, spoiler, she doesn't need <laughs> no. saving. No. Yeah. Well, be- before we get away from the party, I was going to say, it's also that uh, he recognizes that these are people who know the business. Like, th- there is a shared experience they all have. And so it's not quite that he feels comfortable with them. No, but he's so lonely and isolated. He's so lonely. Yeah, he lets his guard down, I think, for two reasons. One, because the floozy has shown an interest in him. Yeah. Yes. And and second, because of the situation with Stan. He has, you know, he, yeah. Stan, yeah. he had gotten rid of Stan. Stan had left him. Now he sees Stan, and he sort of still feels a connection with Stan. And so he's being, you know, Stan is part of the party, right? So he's kind of getting Stan back into into his life again. And so I think all of those things, you know, we spend the first part of the movie seeing how Harry has these walls built up around him and he lets them, and of course he should have kept them because, you know, this <laughs> yeah. is a terrible thing that happens. But it, it, it doesn't, it, to me, it, it does make emotional sense that he lets his guard down uh, at some point. Because people are after him all the time. And, and there's that Terry Gar situation, too, where, exactly. where she has yeah. basically she's tired of his bullshit and uh, has changed your number yes. and doesn't want anything to do with him anymore. So he's all, well, I've made a terrible mistake mm. in being drawn. He also can't resist bragging and trying to prove that he's the best. Right. Like, yeah. right. Right. Bernie is right. Bernie's got like his whole like shtick or whatever. And he's trying to convince him to come work with him. He can't resist not like sort of hanging out like the, you know, the whole like, oh, well, you know, I did this job, but I can't really tell you. It's the really nice touch where he has locked up his cage. That's the actual Mm -hmm. part that is secret. And then he can't bear but go in there and show off some of the things that he's made to them because he wants to show how great he is. What Phil said about the Terry Gar character, like she pops up and, you know, he, he is sent on his way 
because he just won't share anything. And that's early enough in the movie that like we're still sort of getting an idea of who he is as a person and how how guarded he is. Hey, Grace Kelly. Well, that that, and- that scene tells us everything <laughs> we need to know about uh, about who yep. Harry Call is. Right. Mm-hmm. And yeah. and when when they're at the party and Meredith drags him off, you know, they they go off into another part of the the building entirely. And and she's trying to get him to talk and try him, trying to get him to trust her. And you see him start to break down. He starts to have a human connection. He starts to ask her a question that, you know, he he's clearly still not over Terry Gar. And then, first of all, he's disrupted by sound before anything else. And it's, yeah. it's Stan on the scooter. And there's a lot of inaudible yelling and shouting. But one line that, that comes up clearly is, she was wearing a see-through top! And I realized that transparency is a big motif in the movie. Hmm. You have the the see-through mirrored windows of the van. You have his his transparent raincoat. raincoat. You have, uh, you know, why won't you be transparent with me? Why won't you tell me anything? Um, we we have transparency with Robert Duvall later in the film, which we'll get to. Um, but it is it, as soon as I realized that, I was like, oh, I'm I'm going to pay more attention. To those things and it that stuff pops up a lot and if we mention the um the the sets and uh diegetic sound in um in rear window the the soundscape in the conversation oh, is so fantastic at setting the mood where uh for most of the movie you have uh the distorted audio of the conversation that he's recorded just playing constantly in the background and slowly uh clearing up as the movie goes and it's it's just a uh really a fantastic use of uh audio to tell the story the fragments of the conversation themselves are i think the most interesting part of this movie because we see them replayed endlessly and hear them yeah. replayed endlessly mm-hmm. and kind of kind of like phil's experience watching rear window it's all out of order <laughs> yeah right like trying to figure out what the where how is this conversation going how is it progressing what is happening here but each time new detail new is details added emerge yeah. right yeah. And it's in the end in the very end of course it changes the meaning entirely hinges on like the emphasis of a sentence right the he'd kill us if he got the chance right is He'd kill us us if he got the chance. Right. It's a very different meaning when you just (laughs) change the stress a little bit. Which honestly, I will say that like I, you know, Rear Window didn't really have a twist. This had a twist, but I saw it coming so early that that kind of didn't work for me because, you know, the the part where she says, uh, I didn't, don't know what to get him for Christmas or whatever. Well, he won't need it now. And I was like, okay, they're going to kill him. Mm. And so for the rest of the movie, that's what I was expecting. So I got what I expected. I didn't really get mm. the, the twist out of it. Oh, you're a clever ducky then because... <laughs> Apparently. Uh... Well, I just, I, I got to admit, I was, I this is this is not my era of film. So oh, I was, yeah, uh, I was not really enjoying it. So I was paying very close attention to the specifics of it and <laughs> Not really. I wasn't able to submerge myself in the uh, in the, the telling of the story. I was just like watching because I was like, I need to be able to know what happened so I can talk about this on a podcast. I, I've seen this movie ha- half a dozen times, and each time I'm all, oh right, Robert Duvall's yeah, yeah. the one who dies. <laughs> right, right. It right, is the seventies. Yeah. I just want to point out everybody's shaggy and everybody's presumably everybody's greasy, smelly. They yeah. all look dirty. Yeah, yep. everything smells bad. Mm-hmm. 
yeah, this is the second time I saw it. I saw it uh, probably in the earlier mid two thousands, um, and I was just I I had sort of remembered. Wait, I don't think this ends up going the way he thinks it's going to. <laughs> but I had forgotten because that scene with the as they sort of replay what happened, I think is very effective, especially the shot of Robert Duvall under the like under the plastic wrap, sheeting. Yeah, is yeah. is creepy, and uh, you know. The movie doesn't exactly like it's clear, but you're there's also some, if not ambiguity, like you're like, wait, is he imagining this? Is he remembering this? Is he figuring it out? Like there's a little bit of that, like you're sort of reading between the lines. Uh, and I think that's emblematic of the period, certainly. Yeah. I mean, he has he has a couple of dream sequences, which are odd. True. Well, I actually think that dream sequence is really well done, right? Because it's, yeah. he's found this oh, yeah. person. And he's he is willing to be vulnerable to her and explain like he tells her all these stories about him as a kid, right? He's never yeah. clearly never shared that with Terry Gar or anybody. Or and the so priest in the confessional. It's right? breaking Which... down the walls of his again. And and again, we learn as with Meredith, like it's a bad idea. You should keep those walls up. <laughs> Fascinated by this character, the idea that he is an archetype of the genius who doesn't understand how his work will be applied in the real world that we've seen in a lot of different movies it's the you know i only build the bomb i don't drop it kind of character and that confession with the priest i think is really interesting because that's his i'm worried that my work is going to hurt people and we find out that there's this story where these people died and it was all because basically because of him because of the wiretap that he did the surveillance that he did and he is this character is has an innocence about him where he doesn't seem to get people and I think only has this he's been scarred by this one incident but really is not interrogating his own role his own complicitness in he's the push that guilt down deep right it's re- yeah. I think it's really interesting he says uh, a couple of times you know I, I I don't know what they're saying it's it's, it's just my job to record it I don't need to understand oh, what yeah. they're saying. Right? That's not going to stand up. There, there's a part I don't know anything about human nature. Uh, I don't. I don't know anything about curiosity. Right. When when I think it's Stan is asking him, "Aren't you curious about what's going on?" Yes. In yes, this thing, that's no. It. No, no, I'm not. I'm a technician. I don't. I mean, it's literally. I build to take it into a modern context. I build the computer surveillance systems. I understand about surveillance. I understand about networking. I understand about uh, cryptography. What about the content? And it's like, no, I'm not involved in the content. The content just comes along with the ride, which is like, that's really convenient. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. We thought, could we do it? We didn't stop to think, should we? Yeah, because he's yeah. just like, I'm only really concerned about the fact that I can build this cool toy and that I can do this thing. And that's why that's why I think that all jokes about his setup as being a podcast editing thing aside, <laughs> he is an archetypal kind of nerd character in the sense of the person who is very focused on the technology and not concerned about the application. And I found that fascinating. And the fact that he has an inkling and he had this event and he kept doing it. Yeah, he just moved somewhere else. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, I committed a a, a sin in New Jersey, but now I'm in San Francisco, so it's fine. No! (laughs) Well, that is literally how sins work. That's how San Francisco works, too, frankly. You talk about the uh, uh, dream sequences. The other sequence that I find fascinating in this movie is the sequence where he's in the room next door 
to where the mm-hmm. murder is supposed to, or the whatever is supposed yeah. to take place, mm-hmm. which is in the bathroom, right? Yeah. Where he's like, he's, he's wiretapping the room and he goes out on the balcony and, and like Cindy Williams is there in the window. And, and then he goes over there. He got, he curls up in a ball basically. And yeah. then he, and he, and he, and he goes over there and breaks in later and there's nothing there. And it is such a great moment of like all these images that are horrifying sounds that are horrifying. And then he goes in and it's like, Huh? And and it's a real question of like his sanity. Did we did, was that real? And it's a really nice moment because then the movie sort of says, "Yes, here is actually what happened just then." But uh <laughs> in the moment it's very much like he can't process what's going on. Right. By, by the way, yeah. when in San Francisco, do not stay at the Jack Tar Hotel. <laughs> no. <laughs> Horrible things happen there. Flush the toilets at your own risk. Please. Also, if you just mention somebody's name, they'll tell you what room they're in. Exactly. Don't do that. It's 1974. Come on. We were trusting back then. Yeah. I, I also don't want to, like, you know, I don't necessarily want to uh, look in. It's hard to, to view a movie from the 70s with, you know, the, the stuff that we kind of understand a little bit better today but in terms of sort of like being neurotypical you know we talked about him being mm-hmm. a, a nerd but like there is an element of sort of being on the spectrum to harry call yeah. like absolutely the, the having to process like having difficulty with other people and the difficulty in processing the stimuli from when he basically uh, you know catches sight of the murder feel very much like things that perhaps if you know you were understanding this from a, a 21st century perspective might lend itself to suggest that that you know sort of um, uh, a personality or a characteristic but is I think probably harder to do from a 70s perspective one thing I'd like to, to mention about that opening too uh, again talking about soundscapes if you listen very carefully and I didn't pick this up until the second time uh, if you listen very carefully all that audio as the zooming in is going on is all asynchronous. It's not perfectly meshed together. And, you know, it's the opening of the film. We don't know why yet. But then as the film goes on, we learn, oh, oh, that's from different microphones and we're going to mesh that all together. They're going to figure that out. And and it's it's just, it's a really interesting soundscape. It's not just a normal, like, hey, there's sound in this movie, right? It's It's part of the story yeah we're we're put into harry's world immediately through that yeah there's also a lot of music in this movie and that was one of the very few notes i took was just like there's a lot of music in a movie (laughs) where where there's no talking for for a movie that's called the conversation i think i was expecting more dialogue and i got this same (laughs) piano song over and over again and if i never hear it again it will be too gd soon i'm so sick of it my wife basically came downstairs towards the end of the movie and was like doing the dishes right as the scene of the murder happened. And it's got this really oh. discordant, like oh, in wow. your face music. And she's like, this music is making me tense. I don't need this. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's very interesting. It's a David Shire score and he finished the score before the film was shot, which is unusual. And it was just Coppola using the music where he wanted. And, uh, it's not, it's not my favorite David Shire score. That's always going to be Pelham one two three, but I kind of like the way Copley uses the music in this. 
I mean, I'll say it's effective. Yeah. yeah. Oh, like yeah. a lot of movies in the 70s, it's got a very strong sort of alienation vibe to it, mm. right? Where yes. it's like, yes. we are attempting to make you uncomfortable. That is kind of what, Success. you know, we're making, yeah, we're, that's that's <laughs> their goal. We're making we're making yeah. stuff in the 70s that is feels, you know, grittier. It feels a little more uh, dark. It feels more like we want to challenge kind of what the nature is. It's of the a little nihilistic. I feel like we yeah. have the same conversation every time we do an old movie club that happens yeah. in the 70s. That's pretty much true. That was kind of the overriding like, you know, genre from probably the early 70s till probably around the time Star Wars came out. Is my guess. I mean, look at Willy Wonka. I, I don't okay. like Must I? Don't, not directly. <laughs> I, I enjoy Willy Wonka. That's very different. Well, we have very different tastes in movies. <laughs> yeah, clearly. Throughout. Also a lot of smelly, fur, fuzzy people in that. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Tell them I hate them. <laughs> <laughs> I, I recognize that this is not this is not my era. Look, a, a week pre- before we watched this, uh, I had gotten my spouse, Stephen, to watch, uh, what was it, like Spider-Man Far From Home with me because I, I wanted to watch something fun. And when that was done, like he enjoyed it okay, but he was just like, you know what? This movie is over. I need to exfoliate with something <laughs> gritty. So I don't know what he watched. Something from the 70s, something, something from, from the, the same 70s. sort of era. Yeah. And the after Friends this of Eddie mo- Coyle. Taking after Apollo this movie friends. was over, that's, that's I said, you know how you needed to exfoliate mm. after, uh, after the Spider-Man movie? Well, after watching this, I need to moisturize. Oh yeah. So, yeah. We were we were not uh we were only going to watch one movie, but afterwards I was like we are going directly into Rear Window right now. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, the whole what if thing is very popular right now thanks to the those Marvel kids. And uh <laughs> this is my what if movie whereas uh, uh you know, Francis Ford Coppola, he did this movie. He also did the two Godfather pictures sandwiched around it and uh and, and kind of went in that direction with Big and Bombastic because his next movie after this was Apocalypse Now. Yep. And I think he would have had a much better career and be much more highly regarded if he had stuck with these kind of indie cinema smaller pictures. Yeah. Like, I uh, mean, I, I yeah. it definitely struck me as this is film school Coppola, that he like did The Godfather mm-hmm. and then he's like, but now I can do my film school art school movie well yeah because uh, the story with this is that he came up with this idea in 1966 and couldn't yeah, right. get backing for it and then once the godfather hit he says i can make any movie i want now <laughs> i've well, got this script i think the answer is he would be much more highly regarded i mean he's already pretty highly regarded but much more highly regarded artistically as a filmmaker and would have uh, not been able to buy his vineyards uh, yeah, essentially, yeah. right? Well, uh, he, he's highly regarded, and yet name a movie that he made after Apocalypse now that no, you you're right. want to watch. No, you're right. Maybe uh, Tucker. Bram Stoker's Tucker. Dracula. Sorry, no. okay. <laughs> you would not. Peggy Sue got married. No, no, maybe. no, no. no. Not, not especially. No, doesn't work. Jack, you want to watch Jack again? I can show you Jack. So 70s movies, and and let's talk about Coppola, and, and we'll throw in George Lucas, right? These are guys who wanted to make art. Yeah. And they made, oops, they made commerce. (laughs) And they made a lot of money. And I think in both, yep, oops, all berries and money. ruins art faster than money. So, Oops, all blockbusters. Yeah, I think that they're both 
and we could even throw Spielberg in here, although I think Spielberg is a, a, a director a after whose that. tastes, well, his tastes are also a bit more commercial, actually. Most, far more. But, but he also makes, he also, even making commercial movies, oh, if only someone had did a, done a summer of Spielberg movies. Mm. Um, huh? he, uh, he made you commercial movies, but he also does, he, they're good. Yeah. Jaws is a great yeah. movie. Lucas and yeah. Coppola, I, I feel like they really wanted to be making artsy-fartsy movies. And they accidentally ended up making huge amounts of money and becoming insanely rich and got away from the artsy-fartsy movies. And so when you look at American Graffiti and you look at The Conversation, you say, oh, there's a movie where these, or there's a universe where these guys aren't household names, but are recognized as making some good movies in the 70s. And maybe into the 80s. And and I don't know, like, you're right. I think Coppola's career trajectory is very weird. And after Apocalypse Now, debatable whether there's a <laughs> lot after that. But the fact is, The Godfather Part 1 and 2 alone would make him a le- you know, legend essentially forever because those are two fantastic sure. movies. But this movie is sure. very much a what-might-have-been in terms of his career because it's little and it's weird and it is really well made. Like I, I appreciate sure. this movie as off-putting yeah. as it is. Yeah. It's a seventies movie. It is off-putting. <laughs> it is also really, uh, very artsy and clever and uh, inspired by um, blow up. Right. So it's super double artsy. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> and 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 I like it, but it is so like strange and non-commercial, and it's a, a path not taken for this director. And I, I wonder how much of that difference between. Coppola and Lucas and Spielberg is that Coppola and Lucas pretty much did film school and went right into making artsy movies and then started making money. Uh, and Spielberg kind of, kind of did his thing and wound up in TV right? and did, you know, part of the night gallery pilot. And he did the first actual episode of Columbo, which still blows my mind. My personal theory is that, is that Spielberg doesn't fancy himself an artiste right. in the same right. way that mm-hmm. Lucas and Coppola did. And he's he's learned discipline. He's more right. I, well, I think that's the brilliance of not to, this is not the summer of Spielberg, but I think that's the difference between <laughs> them and why Spielberg is a better director than they are is yes. that he didn't fancy himself an artist and an auteur with a particular vision, but he knew what parts of his craft he needed to hone. And then he built a, a career of commercial movies that allowed him to make what he felt were greater, more important pieces of art. And uh, that's a just, it's the opposite direction from what Lucas and Coppola ended up with. Um, but in the end, you know, it's, it is fascinating. And, uh, and having not seen this movie before um, only heard about it, I, I watch it and I think, well, one, I can't believe it's the same director as the Godfather movies. And yet, too, everything I've read about Francis Ford Coppola and art school and, and film school and all of his thoughts about film, I look at this movie and I'm like, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, I get it. <laughs> These directors that came out of the 70s are all always lumped together and, and compared with one another. Uh, I mean, to me, L- Lucas is just is off the table entirely because I don't really like anything that he's done. 
Um, mm. and I, I don't like Star Wars. I mean, it, the first movie was fine. I didn't watch any of the others because I didn't care. Sorry, Doc, you're, break, you're breaking up. Anyway, <laughs> I, I, need, I, need to, yeah. I need to sit what? down. I thought my I hate Harrison Ford thing was going to be the, yeah. the, 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 where, where the pitchfork-wielding mob. Yeah. What are you guys, a 70s film <laughs> alienating I, I me? I mean, I could argue that Star Wars was, was a... a sort of lucky uh from a guy who's not that talented but yes okay well i'll i'll yes, I'll, 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 yes. yes. okay where whereas coppola, coppola is enormously talented yes. as a director and he's wasted his talent yes i, I think yes. In, in many ways oh, oh yes but i also don't but i don't think but i don't think he wasted his talents uh going after commercial success because i think he could be commercially successful if he felt like it i i think the the, the later movies were uh, just, I mean, other than maybe Peggy Sue got married, which was more of a commercial style movie, but the other stuff that he did, Rumblefish, is that is he really is he really looking for a blockbuster with Rumblefish and The Outsiders? I you know, I don't I don't particularly care for those movies, but he's not trying uh, he's not trying to redo The Godfather in in those. I mean, he waited until Godfather Three for that. But he, 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 for the most part, he's trying to do, I think, stuff that he wants to do. And I, but I think that your point about uh, Spielberg is absolutely correct. Spielberg, to me, is the Paul McCartney of of directors in that you cannot imagine Paul McCartney not making commercially successful mu- music. It just pours out of him. And I think commercially successful and good good commercially successful movies just pour out of Spielberg they just it's like he's breathing and and movies come out of him that are eminently watchable the reason i connect coppola and lucas is that they both fancied themselves are are artistic like auteurs essentially and stumbled yes. into great commercial success coppola was right and and, and lucas was wrong but e- but either way, <laughs> they both became wildly popular, and at which point their yeah. career trajectory went in a direction that was not what they intended. And I yeah. would argue maybe they couldn't ever get it, really get it back. But yes, I do think that George Lucas would be happy making THX and American Graffiti forever, other than the fact that Star Wars happened. And I would say the same for Coppola and a movie like this. Like I think Coppola really wanted to have a career making these kind of mid-level, paranoid, artistic, stinky 70s movies. <laughs> greasy, don't forget greasy. And yes, yeah, stinky, greasy, and fuzzy. And uh, and then, you know, instead he worked with Mario Puzo and he made The Godfather and, you know, his career was completely changed after that. And But but like his, his immediate follow-up to Apocalypse Now was one from the heart, which is a musical set in Las Vegas with Terry Garr and everyone's favorite Frederick Forrest. Yes. Oh, um, Frederick Forrest, I love him. <laughs> that that guy, sure, yeah. Mm-hmm. Huh? There is nothing commercial about that movie. It's well, that's the that's the cash in, right? To the, watch the, ca- the yeah. cash in. Yeah. But this but, movie, yeah, it's the one where he gets to make what he wants I, to make. Oh, I also right. wanted to mention um, my uh, John uh, Cazal or Cazale, uh, who is in this movie. As the guy who kind of Harry Sal, yeah, is it Sal? Stan, Stan. 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 Harry, Stan. Harry's a jerk. Very memorable. And he quits the afternoon. And he goes part. and works for the other guy. And then he's like, he feels guilty and all that. But I believe he is most notable because he was in what is it? Five movies. It's five. Five of the greatest movies five ever. Five movies, made. Yeah. all of them great. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, he was in five movies, all of which were nominated for Best Picture. And that's yeah. it because he died, he died young and uh, tragically at 42 in 1978. But he was in The Godfather of the Conversation, Godfather Part Two, Dog Day Afternoon, and The Deer Hunter. Yep. And that's a hell of a pretty, run. pretty good and yeah. resume. And he's he's good in this. He's enjoyable as the as the, the kind of as uh, the gross gross yeah. guy. Super gross. He's guy. playing the John Casale character. Yeah. <laughs> oh, he's, he's free to end you Come twitchy. on. I want to give a shout out to Alan Garfield. Oh, oh yes. Is, One of those it's Alan that Garfield guy. role. He is great. Yeah. Yes. This is this is the archetypal Alan Garfield role. And he is he is so good and you hate him so much. He is so slimy. Oh, he's he is awful. Bernie. Ah, oh, that guy. Okay. He's the guy who told Ford that Cadillac was was getting rid of the fin- tail fins. Of the tail fins. I mean, you know. The industrial yes. aspect. That's actually a great moment that that detail because there's a moment in this movie where you're thinking, "Oh well, you know, he's doing important work." And then and then you realize <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's just crappy, like industrial espionage and stuff like that. And it's like they, I think these guys all cloak themselves and like, oh, you know, what we do here, it's very important. And it's not, it's not, it's actually just kind of crappy. It's innuendo and, or it's, it's one company ripping off another company. And it's like, this is almost like an anti-spy movie where they, these are the people who are applying spy movie techniques just for bad reasons like just to cash in hmm. i think i'm correct i'm 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 shy of saying this after my american graffiti mess up this came out the same year as chinatown uh-huh. and that is another movie where you basically have someone say this is a hell of a way to make a living you <laughs> you you watch people and you you're <laughs> peeping indoors and you're awful people and and jack nicholson gets huffy about that but it's true and uh and and this is basically Chinatown without the uh, the imprimatur of the 1940s. You're all uh, furry and the 1970s and, movies and, full of awful people. Furry and mm-hmm. smelly and yep, yeah, greasy, greasy. We, we have to get Erica to watch uh, Five Easy Pieces. Oh, do, oh, do we, God, no! Do we really have to? <laughs> Every other movie that you have mentioned, uh, the the. Um, Chinatown and American Graffiti and I'm just like oh my god I've seen these movies and I didn't like them either at least in Chinatown they're wearing fedoras Erica you like fedoras (laughs) the costumes were fine Chinatown is just Roger Rabbit without cartoons it's a 70s movie but it's it's a period piece you see so you'd you'd be like wow why are the people in the 50s so smelly and they were so crazy it's It's... Roger Rabbit without the cartoons originally Robert Town wanted to put in cartoons but (laughs) But uh, the technology wasn't available yet. It's it's a prequel to the two Jakes. Mm -hmm. So, Phil, uh, what 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 are your overall as we wrap this up? Like, uh, do you have any overarching thoughts having exposed us to these movies about like the ideas of of uh, of the voyeurism of from the fifties and the seventies perspectives and 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 looking at other stories elsewhere and. All of the the themes. That uh, we've uh, well, seen unlike here. other esteemed panelists, I I really enjoy <laughs> 1970s movies, um, and because of the uh, literally stupid way I came across uh, uh, Rear Window, I I appreciate what Rear Window does, but I love the conversation. Conversation, I love it more each time I see it. Um, it's just one of those movies that has its hooks in me, and um, occasionally. 
I will entertain arguments that it's Coppola's best movie over the Godfather films. Hmm. Um, not sure I entirely agree with what I just said, but uh, you could make a case. Yeah, it would sure. it would be fun to make a case. Mm-hmm. All, yeah. all I will say about the end of the conversation is so much for his security deposit. Yeah, well... <laughs> Oh yeah, I mean he, he that that's the, that's the ultimate. <laughs> that's gonna moment, be an awkward right? conversation with the landlady, uh, Mrs. Evangelista, so when... who already he doesn't like the landlady, so I feel like he's not gonna feel too bad about this. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you have a key to my apartment. Take a key to this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> can, can we can we talk about that? The last shot of of the conversation. Yeah, because um, is it real? Because it's clearly it's a security camera watching him that happens earlier in the in the film as well like there are shots almost every time he's in his apartment you get that same panning left and right to make you feel like it's a security camera i don't think it's actually supposed to be be a security camera i think it's just supposed to evoke that feeling right i i think that's right but i mean it is he coppola really puts a bow on it in the last shot because Mm -hmm. It's go. It goes, you know, way off, and it's completely sweeping the apartment in that in that last shot as as uh, Harry is playing his uh, his saxophone there in the in the you know completely destroyed apartment, and it's clearly meant to to let us know. Well, is it meant to let us know <laughs> that there's a camera in there, which doesn't seem mm. it seems completely impossible. It's Harry's head, right? I mean, that's yeah. what it is. It's yeah. it's Harry's head, but it, it is it is a beautiful shot. And I, of course, having seen the movie a handful of times, I'm I'm no longer struck by it. But I do remember being struck by it the first time I saw the movie. <laughs> is oh that is that was a really effective thing because and what's great about it is we all know what it is, right? We we have by this time, even by 1974, we know what security cameras do because they're around us all the time. And we know that they do this kind of sweeping motion with no, completely mechanical, right? It There is no variation in the speed, the angular speed as it goes from one side to the other and back, and then back in the other direction. And it is a I just think a really brilliant piece of filmmaking. It may seem like a cliche now, but I think it's, I think mm-hmm. he did it, that sort of thing first. And so it, it he gets credit for it. Yeah. Um, it's just, it's really good. And, and again, you have that demo at the convention where there are security cameras and you get to see the motion. So even if yep. you didn't know at the time. Mm-hmm. He's given it to you. Yeah. Yes. He's, yes. it's, he's checkoffing it for you. Yeah, along yeah. with the the saxophone itself, because that's another thing that you see during the security convention is somebody walking past with a saxophone, which I was like, <laughs> that's a very weird thing. Until you get back to the end of the movie and you realize he's sitting there. The only things that are still in one piece, so to speak, are him, the chair he's sitting on, and the saxophone that mm. he's playing. And we had we yeah. saw the sax yeah. we saw a saxophone at the convention. So you know, it's it's. But, Probably that's the way that they were listening in on him the entire time. And he has destroyed everything else except for this one thing, which ironically enough, he's sentimental about because of the music. And he doesn't he doesn't get sentimental about too many things. And every time he does, it bites him in the butt. And here it is at the very end of the movie doing the same thing over again. Like he even destroys the statue of, of the Virgin Mary. Yep. Uh, eventually. Um, I still think it was the telephone listening to him, though. Yeah, I agree with David. I don't. 
Because why would he still keep destroying the, the room if he found the bug? That's the demo. There's no bug in the phone. It's all electronic through the wires. I don't think Bernie's that good. I think Harrison Ford has found somebody better. The, the point is, though, that it, it's his uh, life turned upon him. And yep. right that in the end, that's really what it's about is that is that if you live this life and you do this to people, this is what you're doing to them. And he's sort of living in that in that moment reaps what he sows. And you also have, you know, with with the convention, you have, you know, all this new technology, new ways of, of listening in. And you have Bernie emphasizing, hey, you listen to those two guys on the boat and and no one's ever figured out how you did it. And I'm I'm going to figure that out one of these days. And now here he is, having been listened to, and he can't figure it out because he's stuck in this one time and he's not necessarily moving forward technologically. Yeah. Interesting stuff. Interesting stuff. I I wouldn't say that I enjoyed the conversation as much as that (laughs) I appreciated it. And I I thought about it like... Days later, I was thinking about it. And that's a different, that, that's not bad. Like, I, that is a special kind of thing. I, there are a lot of movies that I don't think about the moment that they're done. I am done thinking about them. And this is a movie that stuck with me, even though, uh, I, I, honestly, a lot of 70s movies are like that. <laughs> where it's like, <laughs> mm, this is unpleasant, huh? But interesting. So, and, and I mean, going, going to Phil's uh, possible thought that this is his best film, I could say, I've thought about this a hell of a lot more than I've ever thought about either Godfather film. Yeah, I wouldn't say that. This would be the best film of almost anybody except Francis Ford Coppola. I think that might be true. Any final thoughts about what we, the journey we have taken with these two movies as you stare out your back window and uh, observe the world around you and into other people's lives. Before you smash your microphones and... Yes, uh, before you tear <laughs> apart your floorboards. Wait, is this being recorded? This is the last Uh-oh. podcast. I mean, we literally have a shotgun yeah. mic. It is being recorded right now. This whole thing is being recorded. That's the twist. That's the twist in the uh, end. I think the twist at the end of Rear Window is that Miss Torso actually has a husband who mm-hmm. comes home from the service. Yeah. That's the twist. That is the twist. <laughs> All right, well, Phil, how'd we do? I think we did okay, Jason. I, 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 I think this was a, I think this was a rare, successful meeting of old movie oh, club. Oh, hooray! <laughs> Finally, we got one. <laughs> Woo! All right, well, I guess that uh, all that is left is for me to thank everybody for being here. David J. Lore, thank you. Jason, here, have a free pen. I don't want it, uh, <laughs> Erica. Ensign, thank you. Uh, it was a. Pl- Pleasure to rewatch Rear Window. Don't forget Greasy. <laughs> Dr. Drang, thank you. Uh, he'd podcast us if he had the chance. <laughs> Dan uh-huh. Warren, thank you. Jason, if you're squeamish, just don't look. And of course, the uh, person who chooses our old movies for us, old movie man himself, Philip Michaels, thank you. Gotta go rip up my floorboards. I'll be, uh, I'll be doing that the rest of the night. And uh, thanks to everybody out there for listening to this episode. Really, you're the voyeurs. We just had a conversation, and you were listening in. Be seeing you. Bye.